Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Real Estate with Rose. I am your host, Rose Thomas, and today I am interviewing Kevin Slyker with Movement Mortgage. Hi, Kevin. Hi, Rose. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start off with just a little bit about yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Sure, sure. So I'm a loan officer with Movement Mortgage. I'm here in Corvallis, Oregon. I'm licensed in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and California. And, uh, and I love it. Yeah. Awesome. So today I wanted to chat with you about what <coughs> buyers should expect for 2022. Yeah. Um, with the market last year was really crazy, mm-hmm. as we all know. And... I think a lot of people are more interested in getting to real estate this year. Mm-hmm. What are some things that buyers can expect? Yeah, I would. Uh, I don't like making predictions, but I, I think a safer bet would be to come up with expectations. Like if something happened, you wouldn't be surprised by it. Uh, in all honesty, I would say they can probably expect about the same as what they heard or saw in 2021. Um, I think that the supply of homes is not quite there um, to meet the demand, so home prices will continue to rise, and maybe not at the astronomical amounts that they did last year, but they that pace will still be there. It just might be a little bit slower. I think the level of competition will still be there, whether that's competing with cash offers or just being competitive financing to financing-wise. If you had two buyers on one home, uh, waiving inspections or getting inspections for informational purposes only, appraisal gaps, things like that. I think that will still be there. Uh, agents know that that wins, and so they're probably going to advise and, and try to go that route. Um, and then interest rates, that was a big one. I, I think that it's 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 kind of okay to say that rates are more than likely going to rise. You know, 2021, we saw the lowest of lows, and that's great, but they have nowhere to go but up from here on out, and so we'll kind of see how that impacts the approvals of buyers and things like that. But generally, um, you know, obviously everybody in the lending world wants rates to stay low. If we could have it our way and wave our magic wand, that's the way it would be, but we're expecting rates to rise. Right, Mm -hmm. right. And um, what do you think, so obviously it's not gonna be, you know, 2008 where Mm -hmm. everything kind of crashes. I think a lot of people are waiting for the market to crash. Do you think that's going to happen anytime soon? I don't. I think that's kind of foolish. I get that a lot. A lot of people are waiting for this big market crash to come. And generally with those folks, I ask them, well, what do you think is going to cause the crash? And they can't really articulate it. So that already breeds uh, the idea that they don't really know what they're talking about. <laughs> I think in, in 08, 09, you know, housing itself more or less led to that recession. This one was caused by a virus, totally different animal. Um, so you can't go apples to apples. Um, and that's, that's the biggest driver. But I think a market crash of that magnitude, what they think is going to happen, what they don't realize is they're more than likely going to be out of a job during that time as well. So what home are you really going to buy if you're unemployed? Right. So if that market crash came in and really deflated values to that level, you probably wouldn't have a job to buy a home during that time anyways. So, uh, yeah, again, I, I think it's it's kind of foolish to wait around for something like that. You know, be better off to just work towards it now and whatever happens, happens kind of thing. You know? Yeah. So what are some things that if I was a first-time home buyer... Mm-hmm. 
you know, just starting to think about the market. What are some things I could be doing right now yeah. to prepare myself for buying a house this year? For sure, for sure. And this this is a big one. It's a great question. What what do people need to do to get there? And I think when you look at the borrower on paper, right, we look at credit, we look at income, we look at assets and, and debts. I think credit, generally, people are okay there. What I've seen is that, you know, mom, dad, everybody in your family tells you credit's important, so you kind of take care of your credit. And barring any major setbacks, you, uh, you're you probably in the range for one or two loan programs, just purely alone on the credit score. Income, I also think people do a pretty good job of looking out for themselves and getting a wage that they think is, you know, good for them. So I think income is less of an issue. The biggest driver for me, the biggest one that I pay attention to, and the biggest trend that I saw was really assets and debts. Um, Debts, for sure, folks just are way too far in in debt with with student loans, vehicle loans, credit cards, and then in a sense, assets are low, and that makes sense because, well, if you're trying to pay off debts, you're not necessarily saving. And so, yeah, I think the number one thing that folks can do to get in a position to buy would be to start minimizing the debts, Um, whether that be sacrificing their lifestyle, trading in that that brand new Tesla for a Honda (laughs) Civic or what have you, but it's it's the God's honest truth. I think most people kind of uh, get a job, they feel a little bit better about themselves and they want a nicer car because they've always had clunkers from high school or whatever. And uh, and yeah, they, they strap themselves into that and that monthly obligation prohibits you significantly from purchasing a home so yeah debts are the the biggest uh drawback i think and the the biggest setback for the millennial generation which is the biggest generation purchasing right now um so yeah i think if you were to get a gift of down payment that's fantastic uh but maybe you should do some kind of debt consolidation uh first i think that's the biggest one so i know that a lot of people my age have a lot of student loans Mm -hmm. how uh does that factor into the loan process it's i would say it's not as big as you think right i mean doctors have loans and doctors buy homes Mm -hmm. so it's really not a major 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 factor especially when you take into account income-based repayments and things like that right if we now with covid there were a lot of people who had student loans in deferment what that basically means is when we would pull your credit, we would see zero payments. Uh, the, what, what you pay per month would say zero. So in that case, we would have to create a, a payment for you. The anticipation right. would be like, okay, you're going to buy this home, but we need to make sure that you can still make your student loan payments. That, you know, that rule of thumb can sometimes hurt. So you can always go get an income-based repayment plan. And generally those payments are very uh, feasible. And so again, doesn't, doesn't impact your approval as much as you would think. The ones that are a bit less negotiable, like I said, are the vehicle loans and, you know, refinancing your car or something like that can take time. But yeah, I mean, $500 a month, this is very back of the napkin. I probably shouldn't even go on the podcast saying this, but uh, I, I always tell people generally 400 to $500 a month in an auto loan payment buys you about $100,000 worth of home. Okay. So you can see what, what that would do to a, a person who's approved at 300000 uh, get rid of the vehicle, maybe they're closer to 400000 So that puts them in a different uh, competition level in the marketplace. It puts them in a different home. Um, it's, it's really life-changing. So, yeah, I think getting rid of the vehicle loans is more important than the student loans. Okay. So in the <clears throat> like tier 
of loans you should repay to be able to qualify for a home loan. Mm-hmm. Vehicle loans would be top priority. Well, number one would be credit cards. Credit cards. Yeah, those are the nastiest and, and the highest in interest. And you definitely want to get out from under that. And then after that, I would start knocking down vehicles. Yep. And then because the student loans, the balances are huge. You're not going to pay that off in two years, right? You right. can You can work <laughs> really hard for six months and sacrifice and eat ramen, do whatever you got to do. You could, you could really get rid of your credit card debt and maybe even in a year or two pay off a vehicle. Uh, but student loans, you're really not going to knock <laughs> yeah. down $50,000 worth of debt in one year kind of thing. Right. So, if you yeah. do, please tell me how. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> it's like if you could, everybody be doing it. So, and, and the other thing too is when you look at debts, you want to pay off the most expensive debt first. And so student loans are usually... At really low interest rates, so it's it's um it's it's not the worst debt in the world in that sense. Yeah. And another thing that people automatically go to when they're thinking of buying a house is their down payment. Mm-hmm. And as we both know, you don't necessarily need twenty percent down. Um, do you mind talking about a couple <clears throat> of uh, loan programs that yeah. you wouldn't need? For sure, yeah. So FHA is the big one mm-hmm. that's always green, three and a half percent down. Um, you know, there's some drawbacks to FHA, but it's the right loan program for the right person at the right time. Three and a half percent down is the minimum down payment for FHA. Uh, you will have mortgage insurance on that loan, and you'll have it for the life of the loan. Conventional, if you do less than twenty percent down, you will have mortgage insurance, but it'll drop off over time. So most people try to go conventional, and again, taking their parents or <clears throat> grandparents' advice. They try to come up with the 20% down, and that's right. a lot. Yeah. Uh, to save that up, you just can't save that as fast as the home prices are, are uh, escalating. So you really can never catch that, that ride. Um, so minimum down is okay, uh, especially conventional. But yes, you can do 3% down on a conventional. Uh, you would do some first-time home buyer classes through Fannie and Freddie, and, and there you go. The biggest driver between the two programs and down payment, like why would you go one versus the other? A big driver in that is credit score and what your mortgage insurance payment looks like. So sometimes FHA can be more forgiving on the mortgage insurance than conventional, depending on the borrower's credit. But yeah, 3% down. And then outside of that, you have USDA, which is a rural sort of loan program, uh, 0% down. And then of course, VA is 0% down. And those two have their own I would say, kind of demographic that they serve. So there's different requirements there. You have to, one, be a veteran, and the other one, with USDA, I think most people most people say, well, USDA is 0% down, I want to go buy that. Well, the USDA has very strict guidelines, and it's kind of set up in a certain way for a certain type of person, you know? Uh, maybe somebody who owns a farm or has their credit mm-hmm. assets and income set up a certain way. So not everybody will qualify for USDA or VA in that sense, but those are 0% down financing options. What is the most common loan that you process? Me personally? Yeah. Oof, I would say probably VA just because of my background Mm -hmm. as a veteran, and I have a lot of uh, friends that are military that that look to use their VA home loan benefit. Um, But yeah, I'm pretty split between VA and conventional. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I've done some... I've done USDA, I've done FHA, uh, but yeah, my number one would yeah would, would be VA. Mm-hmm. So let's let's talk interest rates for a second. Okay. Last year they were all time low, yeah. and a lot of people took advantage of that. Where do you see interest rates going through this year? Right. So I think they're going to rise. I think they're going to go up, um, and 
again, if we could, we would keep them as low as we can. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, for for the majority of Americans, I think they refinanced last year. If they did, great, good on them. They took advantage of those low rates. If you're refinancing this year, you're probably doing like a cash out debt consolidation type of scenario. And if you're in a push or in a pinch like that to do cash out, you're at the mercy of the markets. You're just going to get whatever rates are there. But as far as buyers are concerned, as interest rates rise, they will typically be approved for less and less because the interest rate drives their debt to income ratio. And that ratio is a, uh, a benchmark for us to use in their pre-approval process. So it is it is kind of tough to watch interest rates rise and some people basically get priced out of the market. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really hard to see, you know, young people trying to come in. For and sure. They just can't. They, they did everything right. Yeah. You know, they paid off the debt, so they got a better job or what have you, and they've been at it for years. And then as rates rise, it's kind of just like watching, uh, you know, watching their dreams go away a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's sad, but I think I think it'll get better. <laughs> yeah, and if you look at the grand scheme of things too, right? And last year, you'd say, okay, rates were the lowest of lows. They were in the twos, you know. And, the low threes. And so even if we were to maybe even see interest rates in the 4% range this year, that's really not unheard of. You know, at the end of 2019, we saw that and we saw um, the fours actually go away. We were in the fives and previous generations saw 8%, 10%, 12%. So I know that doesn't help people today to be like, well, other generations had it worse, but you're still in a great position overall and you're still borrowing money very, very cheaply. So, you know, if you can, now's the time, basically. How soon should someone who's looking to purchase, <clears throat> let's say, this summer, how mm-hmm. soon they sh- should they be contacting the lender and starting the process? Right away, right away. The lender conversation usually happens after the fact, and that's a shame. But, you know, like most folks, they want to buy a home. The first person they do is, uh, the first person they think of as a real estate agent right. or uh, they go to Facebook and they say, I'm looking to buy a home and then boom, here come the thousand recommendations. But a lender is going to set you up for success way ahead of the time. And it's, it's, you never quite know, but there could be something lingering on the credit report that could be uh, a big hurdle, something to overcome. Um, especially if you've had a business and you want to get your tax returns analyzed properly and everything like that. Um, yeah, I would say the best time to talk to a lender is right away and then just get those ducks in a row. Know what your budget is. Know what your closing costs look like. Know what the uh, estimated monthly payment looks like. All of that is going to help you go out into this competitive marketplace and, and be able to move efficiently. You know, you don't want to dilly-dally. You don't want to go find a home that you love and say, okay, well, now I think I should go get pre-approved. By the time you get back to that home with a pre-approval letter in hand, that home has been long gone. Right. So that's the biggest mistake I saw last year was folks saying, I love this home. It's a dream home. They can, you know, picture the kids in the driveway, everything. And I get that. But they took too long to get pre-approved. And so by the, by the time they got it all shaken out, yeah, that home was long gone. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's unfortunately the reality of the market we're in is mm-hmm. things are on the market as little as, yeah, I've seen them go 12 over, hours. Over a weekend. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. You really mm-hmm. have to be on top of it and mm-hmm. have your pre-approval ready yep. to ready be able to, to you know, make offers. Right. And even then, you're mm-hmm. still competing against a lot of people. Right, right. And, and being comfortable with... I would say that the other thing, too, on that note would be to be comfortable with the payment, to be comfortable with you know, closing costs and things like that. It's, it's, it's kind of a big step to go from renting to owning. 
And if you're renting for $900 and you're getting a mortgage for $1,800, that's really moving the needle for you month to month. Um, but keep in mind, we go off of gross income. So mm-hmm. we're, not, we're not looking at net income. So really, you could be in a position where you're paying a lot more than what you're comfortable with. And so what I do is I always approve people, say this is your max pre-approval amount. Um, but here are some other options. And specifically, one of those options would be what they said they were comfortable with. Now, if they said I was comfortable with a $1,200 a month payment and that only gets them so much house, they can they can have that conversation um, like husband, wife, spouse, whoever, they can have that conversation to say, well, maybe we want to increase our monthly payment and get a better home based on what they're looking at. Um, but yeah, they have to know their max. They have to know their ceiling. They have to know all the in-betweens and really be good with that. Taking on uh, the, the heat, the electric bill in a house is different than, than you know, your tiny apartment. And right. so taking those right. things into account, I think is really important. And a lot of people don't. And that's never a good feeling is, is when you as a lender get a phone call a couple months down the road and, and it's like, hey, we really can't make our payments. Like, what can we do? Um, especially if we're in an interest rate environment where the interest rates are rising. You know, we can't refi you into a lower payment if rates are higher necessarily. Right. So, um, yeah. And the best advice I got and the best advice I would give to anybody who is looking to purchase a home, I would say go find a home that you think meets your style, your budget, whatever like what you think is reasonable for you, right? And so figure out what your monthly payment would be. There's many calculators out there that you can use. And then take that monthly payment and put it into a savings account for about three to six months. Make a mortgage payment every month for three to six months and then ask yourself at the end of that time, how do I feel? Do I feel like I can still live this lifestyle? You know, don't touch it. Like literally put it in a savings account, you know, and um, are you are you able to pay your other bills? Are you able to go out for dinner? Are you able to take that trip that you wanted? And I think a lot of people would be surprised at how um, constrictive maybe life got for them once they took on a mortgage. Right, so, right. Yeah. And you mentioned something earlier that I think a lot of people forget about, um, closing costs. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. we used to be able to, you know, ask sellers to pay for closing costs, right. not anymore. Not unheard of. Um, but last year, yeah, that pretty much went away. And it just goes back to that level of competition. Um, I, you know, you, you will hear people say, well, uh, you know, lenders specifically are terrible at this, but they'll say, like, I can get you in the home with no money out of pocket, you know, that kind of thing. It's like, especially VA, right? I've, I've had clients where we were able to get them into the home, no money down. Um, and then have the seller pay their closing costs. So they basically moved in with nothing out of pocket, and that's fantastic. But last year, good luck getting that offer to stick. Yeah. You know, sellers know that they have the power. They know that they don't have to accept that offer when they're looking at some maybe California cash offer. And, uh, yeah, it was a tough, tough sell last year. I think this year it'll be much of the same, for sure. Yeah. But that is a way to go, getting closing costs financed by the sellers. Yeah. For now, maybe that's a back burner. <laughs> maybe that'll come back in the future. Right. <laughs> I think I think people don't really know what closing costs are. Do you mm-hmm. mind speaking about like what in, like what goes into closing costs? What goes into closing costs? Sure. What What am I paying for? It? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So there are the um, there's a lot that goes into closing costs. Let me get my head around it. So there's a there's what you pay the lender mm-hmm. to process and underwrite the loan. <clears throat> if you're buying your rate down with points, that cost is included in those as well. Uh, but a, the biggest driver to the closing costs is going to be the home specifically. And by that, I mean what the taxes and insurance are. 
So taxes and insurance are your prepaids. You pay those up front. So when that bill becomes due, you have enough in your account to pay that. Right? The servicer has your tax bill ready to go when tax time comes, similarly with homeowner's insurance. So we use an estimate for much of that. Once you get under contract on a home, okay, well now I know the actual, that property address. And even before when you wanted to make an offer, I can look it up for you, but bells and whistles on the homeowner's insurance policy, things like that, that'll drive how much we collect in prepaids. And that's a, that's a big portion. Uh, the other portion is what you pay, you know, title and escrow, uh, the settlement charges themselves. So they have to record with the county and do what they do, and there's a lot of fees that go into that as well. So, right. yeah, I think um, aside from just what our closing costs, I, I think my advice to any client would be that if you're working with a lender who can't articulate and explain what each line item is, uh, you're probably in the wrong position. Right. You know? uh, lenders should be able to clearly and concisely tell you what every single cost is, why it's there. Um, and, and what it's for, and you should feel comfortable knowing that. If they're glazing over certain things or they're kind of not getting to the point, I think that's a big red flag for you know first-time homebuyers, for sure. And I, I think they do a pretty good job overall. I've had senior clients who have mm-hmm. purchased multiple homes. They pretty much just are like, okay, yeah, your closing costs are comparable or they're lower or whatever than I expected, and they just move forward. I've had first-time homebuyers go literally line by line and ask me a million and one questions on on the disclosures that they see and granted those aren't necessarily easy reading material but yeah i think first timers are are uh, doing a good job of of keeping us you know to that level of service right yeah right what else do you think we could expect in 2022 hmm you know i think the biggest things for 2022 that stick out to me are really the question of, you know, can we get beyond COVID? Mm-hmm. Um, another big one is what's going to happen with, uh, you know, I don't want to say unemployment, but labor force participation. And mm-hmm. what are employers going to do with their employees? And, and then that has yet to be determined with allowing people to work remote or not, you know, a lot of companies are paying for buildings that are vacant currently. So um, are they going to force people to come back to work or are they going to allow people to work from home who have obviously proven themselves okay to work from home so get the same job done? But yeah, all of those are still kind of up in the air and I think it's case by case. I think it's industry by industry and and company by company. So um, those are big things for me. It's like, what's going to happen with COVID? Are we going to get another strain? Are we going to get beyond it? Uh, What are what's the employee-employer relationship going to look like in 2022? Which, and the only reason I care about that is because that does drive your ability to buy a home. Right. Um, so I pay attention to that kind of stuff. And then outside of that, um, I might just end it there because I kind of feel like we have a good sense of what the real estate market's going to do. And if you made it through 2021, um, you kind of know what to expect yeah. in, in 2022 when it comes to real estate, competition, the market, that kind of stuff. Yeah. On a total side note, do you have any crazy stories from your time in lending? Crazy stories? Um, there's a lot, you know, and um, I think that, man, this is one where you got to be careful. And <laughs> yes. any, any lender that's listening to this is going to be like, Kevin, don't do it. It's so <laughs> enticing to just start, you know, 
breaking down like some of the things that have happened on loans mm-hmm. and why they didn't fund or why they didn't come to fruition. Um, but yeah, I, I think crazy stories, I would say in the world of lending, you really have not seen it all. And some of the most common sense things will basically like, oh, I don't even want to say it. So <laughs> like employment, income, assets, mm-hmm. these are all things that impact the pre-approval. They impact that, that particular client file. So whether it was a job change in the middle of the transaction or uh, they got a gift of down payment from their parents, but they spent it. Oh, no. Like like on something that had nothing to do with the home. Oh, um, no. The, uh, the, the job one was a big one during COVID mm-hmm. where people said, oh, I work remote, and they weren't really remote. You know, mm-hmm. we verify everything that you tell us with your right. employer. So if your employer says, well, you were working remote because of COVID, and we absolutely expect you to come back to the office when COVID's over, well, that's a totally different you know, name to the game, then you just saying, oh, I can work from home and I can do whatever I want. Right. Um, so yeah, employment changes are brutal to do to a lender during a, uh, a loan process. Um, and, uh, and quitting your job, things like that. Another one is when buyers will get excited about the home and like maybe a day or two before closing, they'll go buy a bunch of furniture or open up a new credit card or credit mm-hmm. line. So we monitor your credit throughout the whole process. So that's another one where, um, now we have to go back, add that liability, hit you with a monthly payment, and sometimes that can kill your approval. So, um, yeah, and agents, I think, uh, you know, I think agents, I don't want to scare any agents, but I, I do want agents to understand that the loan process is a delicate one, mm-hmm. and the client ultimately has control over our success as a whole team. And so it's important for everybody to be on the same page with the do's and don'ts and and making sure that the common sense becomes common Uh, because yes, there are some crazy stories, but I'll save those for another day. I I know that there's probably going to be a lot of agents listening to this podcast. Mm -hmm. So um, touching on what you just mentioned, what are some things that we can do to help you do your job better and to help everything close on time? For sure. I, I think the biggest mistake I see agents make is taking on the burden of becoming a loan officer. Mm-hmm. If, if you don't trust your loan officer or your referral partner to answer those questions about rate, payment, closing costs, credit, debts, income, assets, then you're not working with a top-notch loan officer. You should not be talking about that or discussing that with your client. You shouldn't be talking about rate and fee and things like that. You, you need to be working with a loan officer who can do their job, basically. You know, I, I think it's important to understand and set up the expectations that this is your lane, this is my lane, and give your loan officers that ownership and that agency because um, if they're dropping the ball, by all means, go find another loan officer. But the worst thing that I've seen is where the client kind of gets spun and they get confused because the agent said something that's not technically wrong, but not technically right. Right. Because every client is specific. It's, it's that, that specific client has their specific issues that maybe the lender knows that you don't. Um, and so those are things where I would, I would say agents should more often than not say, talk to the lender and they need to be able to trust the lender to do that. Hence the reason I'm saying, you know, work with somebody that is reputable, but yeah, that's a big one. Um, and, uh, just understanding that from the lender's perspective, we do care about the client and we do. Uh, care about the client as much as you, you know, and we're, we're compensated the same. We have the same vested interests, but I think 
the one thing that may be missed sometimes is that lenders understand that we all need to go along to get along and that the relationship between the real estate agent and the lender is super important. And from the lender's perspective, we want to be able to work with you again. We want to be able to continue this relationship. And so when things can become tough or challenging, like let's all just remember why we're here. Yes, right. it's to help that family. But at the same time, like I have to work with you five years down the road, 10 years down the road. So like, let's not burn any bridges either. Let's, right. let's be intelligent. Let's be honest. Let's be, you know, civil. And I think that's a big, big piece that we kind of missed in, in the midst of 2021 and the competitiveness right. and everything. And, uh, even agents see it from listing agents to buyers agents there there can be you know um friction there but the worst friction to have is friction between a real estate agent and a lender because the ultimate loss there is the client experience right and i think that's important for the lender and the uh, agent to be on the same page and just have frank discussions like i i don't like the way you handled this can you do this differently with my next client if, if you're working with somebody who's not willing to do that for you then yeah keep it moving um, I'm very open. I'm very transparent when it comes to those relationships and expectation management, uh, especially if you intend to work with this person for years. It's like a marriage, right? Would you just like let your spouse keep driving you nuts or would you say, hey, I really appreciate it if you kind of like did this differently? It's the same thing, you right. know? So the worst thing that you can do is remain silent. The worst thing you can do is not air it out, not bring it up to the attention of you and your partner. Um, yeah, that be my advice. Right. I think... I think as agents in this industry, we forget that you're on our team mm -hmm. and or we're all on the same team, all trying to do one goal like right. you were mentioning. And I think sometimes we, my biggest thing I think is, do we, honestly, do we uh, put our closing timelines too, too close? I've had, I've had some people, you know, like 30 day close, let's do it. And some lenders yeah. are like, ah, I don't know if I can. Yeah, get that done. That's a really good question, and um, and it's it's one where I think agents have to understand that not all lenders are created equal mm -hmm. in that sense, um, and for a multitude of reasons. That's a really good question because there's a lot of depth there. So if you're working with a law officer who, let's say, last year um, wasn't getting back to you in a good amount of time, like a time that you would, you would say was, would be normal, right? Like you right. send them a, an agent, you send them a lead and you check in a week later and they're like, Oh my God, I haven't reached out to that lead. I'm so sorry. Last year, that's probably because your lender was more focused on their refinance business right. than they were your purchase business. And there's reasons for that. Right. But the other thing too, is when, last year hit and lenders were just getting crushed with purchase applications and refinance applications, um, certain companies are set up to do certain things. So your banks and community credit unions, you know, let's not forget those are depository institutions. Those are banks first, lenders second. Mm -hmm. So the economies of scale aren't necessarily set up for purchases and refinances in that sense. Um, retail lenders like myself are out of the retail lending world. Movement Mortgage specifically prioritizes purchases. And that's one of the reasons I'm at the company because they're big on us working with agents, us working with buyers. Refinance is fine. Like everybody can refinance with Movement Mortgage. That's not a problem, but um, we are purchased first. And I think that comes down to, you know, the, the company itself, how it's set up, 
and what loan officers that attracts. And then also just outside of movement and all the other retail lenders in town, you know, you're, you're dealing with that specific loan officer. Sometimes it's not the company. Sometimes it's that loan officer. Maybe they just got busy with refinances and they're like, yeah, I don't want to deal with purchases. Right. Sometimes they're more of a headache. So (laughs) yeah, I think, um, that is one piece, but as far as, uh, writing up your contracts and, and the close dates and things like that, 30 days is and in, in, in the purchase world, 30 days is not a problem for anybody at Movement Mortgage. Um, other other shops may have have um, had some slowdown or some issues there. Um, and even during the refi boom, I think I think honestly not to sound like a cheerleader, but I, I think Movement Mortgage did a great job. I've been at three different mortgage companies. So to, to say that to me means something. It's like movement really did handle the stress test that was put on it in 2021. And I can't speak highly enough about it, especially um, on the purchase side, because I mean, that's just, it's important, you know, right. getting people right. into homes. You can refinance folks later, but you know, um, taking care of our agents and our partners is the number one goal. So yeah. What have you been told that 30 days is too short for a purchase or yeah, last year I had a few lenders who, I mean, I always ask before I write up the contract. Mm-hmm. I usually call the lender and say, hey, how long do you need to close this? Right. But last year, I think average was about 45 days yeah, for yeah. most people. Well, you're um, you're a sweetheart for even doing that, honestly, <laughs> because most most agents just write up the contract yeah. and, and then hand it to us. And, and then the expectation is just make it happen. Um, so for you to even call and consider that, I'm, I'm sure one of you brownie points with lenders. Um, but yeah, I think, um, at the end of the day, it goes back to that teamwork thing and just mm-hmm. understanding that we all want this to close as soon as possible, right? Why would a lender want to close this purchase six months from now? That makes no sense, right? right? right. The lender wants to get it done as quickly as possible. The agents want it done as quickly as possible. So the, the, uh, the conversation needs to happen on can this you know be done and what do you need to facilitate that and so on and so forth um yeah just good communication is is key there but looks like we're almost out of time but uh before you go what is the one thing you'd like everyone to take away from our conversation today man the one thing i would want people to take away this would be like other agents or buyers or uh let's do buyers okay i'll do both i'll say For buyers, my number one piece of advice would be to understand economics. And Mm -hmm. if you look up the root word there in economics, it means management of the household. My goal as a lender with all the buyers is to get them to think like an economist would, to think about their income, think about their debts, and really try to understand um, how that all plays into the world at large. Um, a lot of folks are going off of advice from a hundred years ago that just doesn't work. A lot of people are just Googling things and reading the first bloggers post and assuming that that's the gospel. And it's just not the case. I think you should pay attention to your sources and you should really, really, really get serious about your finances. We're, we're in a world where no one's coming to rescue you and it's on you. So, um, you have a brain, you have eyes, use them, read books and, and, you know, get after it, whatever your goal is, yeah. get after it. And then, um, my advice to agents would be, um, to, to stay open in communication, you know? Um, and I would emphasize strong relationships between, um, lenders and title and escrow mm-hmm. and real estate agents. 
Um, the agents that do the best, and I'm talking long game here, mm-hmm. people who have a sound review, they, they've been around for years, right. everybody loves them, they're like, oh my God, I'll do anything for them, right? Whether that would be negotiating a contract, um, negotiating anything, everybody wants to work with that agent because that agent's just really awesome. Well, that agent's awesome because they were open, they were honest, they took care of their lenders, they took care of title and escrow, they took care of their clients. They're just good people. And that's the big thing I would say is this industry needs more good people and uh, and all of us to kind of, you know, go along to get along kind of thing. That would yeah. be my advice to agents is for the good ones, keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> and for the bad ones, like, you know, step up, yeah, step up. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and my advice to lenders would be the same thing as well, there, honestly. Um, a lot of lenders get by with, I think, subpar performance, mm-hmm. and um, I think it's time for a lot of lenders to invest in the tools and the technology that we have today to deliver that client experience. Um, because um, if you don't, you're gonna die. Basically, yeah, you're gonna die off. You know, you don't want to be the last of a dying breed. Yeah. So yeah, that would be it. And well, uh, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, thank you so much for mm-hmm. joining me on my podcast today. Um, where can people find you? So they can um, follow me um, on social media. I'm not very big on social media, but I am there. Uh, Kevin Slyker. I just have a uh, Facebook personal page. And then Kevin at Movement. Kevin underscore at underscore Movement. Uh, I'm on Instagram. You can follow me along there. And then, uh, yeah, they can find me on Google, Zillow, and check it out. And um, if they ever have any questions, they can reach out. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Rose.